This is Josh. I just wanted to apologize in advance for the poor sound quality on this week's episode of Uprooted. Um, I had a bad connection that I did not realize until I started listening to the recording. I did uh, some work to make it sound a bit better, but uh, this was uh, about as good as we could get it before we got it up because we wanted to have this episode out in time for the election, which is uh, tomorrow. Anyway, thanks for listening. Enjoy the show. You're listening to Uprooted, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. I'm Josh Wise. You may have heard that there's an election on Tuesday. There are a lot of high-profile races going on across the country, uh, but also there are several initiatives dealing with climate change that voters will uh, go to the polls and vote on via referendum. And talking with me about that as well as uh, the state's general responses to climate change and agriculture is ITP's Director of Climate Change and Rural Strategies, Ben Willis. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. All right, so to back up a little bit, in March of this year, uh, you had released a paper uh, called From the Ground Up um, that you had uh, put out with our uh, last summer's intern, Lachlan Anathazu, um, that did an analysis of where states were at in their uh, climate commitments on agriculture. Uh, can you just give a brief recap of that? Um, you know, the sort of top line was uh, compared to other sectors of the economy, agriculture is a bit behind. Yeah, what we looked at was um, specifically around climate adaptation. So um, a lot of states are actually thinking about climate adaptation a lot more than I think is publicly known. And, and one of the reasons is because climate change is costing state governments quite a bit of money. Um, not just on the big disasters that we hear about, whether it's hurricanes or, or wildfire, uh, wildfires and droughts and things like that, but also just um, overburdening the infrastructure. And so the, a lot of focus has been on things like cities and how do we adapt to changing weather. Um, much less focus has been on agriculture, which is directly affected by climate change. And farmers will tell you that um, in nearly every part of the country. Um, and so what we looked at is how states are looking at adaptation, climate adaptation with regards to agriculture. And we found that really only 18 states um, have climate adaptation plans that are looking at agriculture. And even those that do um, are really sort of superficial examinations, highlighting concerns, but not really having programs in place to help farmers adapt and not thinking of the bigger picture sort of long-term about, okay, how is this gonna change our growing patterns? How is this gonna change our access to water? Um, how do we need to think about the landscape differently and the farm economy uh, uh, differently. So that was the the sort of basic findings of that report. And now that we're in November, it's been about six months, um, has there been any movement from any of the states on this or are we kind of waiting to see what the results of the election will be in terms of how states are going to respond? I think, it's a com I think there's definitely some waiting, uh, but there is, has been some action. I mean, states uh, have had to step into the void of climate leadership um, that is coming from the Trump administration. In fact, not only a void, but actively um, serving the fossil fuel industry 
and in many ways increasing our greenhouse gas emissions um, from trying to kill the clean power plan uh, to pulling out of the Paris Climate Agreement. And so states have sort of out of necessity had to, had to take a little bit more leadership. Um, you may have seen recently over the last week, North Carolina and their governor um, really stepped up their climate commitment in response to you know, getting hit by a hurricane twice in the last three years and really recognizing that they need to take more of a leadership role in climate. So put forward a plan around renewable energy um, there. Uh, and about, about a dozen states have affirmed their commitment to the Paris Climate Agreement. So there is a lot of things bubbling up at the state level. Um, and I think that there is um, also some waiting about what's going to happen in this election. And there are a couple important initiatives on the ballot that maybe we'll talk about. Right, yeah. So let's start with Washington. Um, Washington has a proposed carbon fee. Um, IATP has been critical in the past of carbon markets. Can you explain a bit more about the Washington uh, referendum? Yeah, sure. Um, this is a, um, it's a carbon fee placed uh, $15 per metric ton uh, of carbon, and, and it will apply, start in 2020. Um, and then increase uh, $2 a year from there through 2035. Um, if they can meet their goals, they want to reduce uh, emissions by 20 million metric tons of carbon. Uh, that's their goal. And so it's a, it applies to utilities. It'll apply to the big greenhouse gas emitters in the state. Um, there are some exemptions. So the paper industry is exempt, uh, aluminum, uh, Boeing and aircraft uh, are exempt industries, um, and it also exempts agriculture and diesel fuel um, related to agricultural production. But I think one of the more, um, so it, just like a, a carbon market, there are many different ways to construct it and, and put it together. It's a similar with what is being talked about with a carbon tax, or in this case, they, they call it a carbon fee. Um, in a carbon tax, you can um, decide to take the money in and give it back, um, take it from the polluters and give it back to citizens and say, this is going to account for your increased um, costs associated with rising energy costs. And that is something that Canada is proposing right now. And that is a similar um, uh, program that was on the ballot in Washington two years ago. Uh, which was a, a basically a carbon tax that would then refund money to citizens. And that was defeated. And part of the reason it was defeated was there was a big split within um, sort of the environmental community about that approach um, and a feeling that uh, many uh, low-income communities um, wouldn't really benefit from that kind of approach and, in fact, be harmed potentially from that. And so there was a lot of work being done um, by different constituencies in the lead up to this present initiative. So labor folks were uh, together with environmental, environmental justice, indigenous communities, um, communities of color there. Um, and they really kind of put together this plan. And I think what's interesting is that uh, the money from the carbon fee will go into three different funds. Um, one focused on um, uh, reducing emissions and air quality and, and uh, investing in renewable energy. 
The other fund will go into uh, water management and forest management, which is a key um, issue out there in Washington and a key part of um, responding to climate change. And the third um, will go towards communities that are being affected by climate change. And Washington has several of those, uh, particularly uh, close to the ocean there, who are being affected right now. And, and so, so sort of an adaptation focus. Um, and not only do they have these three fees, but they also have a place at the table for these type of public interest groups, um, so labor, environmental, uh, activist groups or NGOs, will be at the table in deciding how to spend this money. There will be panels set up, so they'll be there together with government, um, with state agencies, um, trying to figure out what projects best support the goals there. Um, so it's a very, uh, obviously, very different approach than the carbon tax from two years ago. And uh, it will have to see what kind of support it can get. But the hope is that everyone uh, is pretty much on board with this approach that wants to act on climate in the state of Washington and that that will be enough to push it, push it forward. And so you, you had said that agriculture was exempted um, from the fee. What might be some of the other impacts that Washington would see in agriculture or are there any? Yeah, no, there are. And um, so uh, just to point out that part of the reason they did that um, was that, you know, one of the constituencies that they were working with and getting feedback from on this initiative were farm workers. And, um, and farm workers really expressed the concern that, that if this fee um, could undermine farmers there, their ability to farm, and they could lose jobs. So it wasn't so much actually coming from farmers explaining this, um, but really farm workers talking about it. Um, so how, how they have set it up is that um, in their air and energy fund, um, they would have designate a certain amount of money for the use of conservation easements. And easements are basically legal contracts that landowners sign um, and they make a commitment to do certain types of practices and to protect that land and to keep it in, in whatever form that they agree to within that easement. So there's a lot of easements out there around water protection right now uh, or protecting forests or so forth. Um, and what they are doing is taking kind of an innovative approach and including in there um, practices that would sequester carbon. So these are um, things like... Um, perennials, using perennials on the land, um, cover crops, different types of rotation, different types of sustainably managed grazing systems. Um, and so it's a kind of a unique approach where, and it also, of course, locks that in over time. Um, so that's been one of the concerns, I think, with some of the carbon sequestration in agriculture is that, you know, if in five years the farmer changes their mind or something happens, they have to they have to change their system suddenly a lot of that carbon that's been sequestered and is released this kind of gets around that so it's an it's um, they'll spend if if this thing passes they'll spend 2019 sort of figuring out the details of how that would work that's pretty interesting I think there's a couple other areas of course the investments in renewable energy could also have real benefits for farmers in terms of on-farm energy and being connected to that economy as that grows. And then, you know, forest and water protection, um, there could also be some benefits there in terms of those kinds of investments for farmers 
who have sort of a diverse landscape. Um, so it's a, it's a it's an interesting approach, and I think the involvement of the public in deciding how the how the money is spent um, will offer other opportunities for farmers to engage in that process as it goes forward, if it passes in a few days. <laughs> right. Well, let's uh, let's transition over to Arizona, um, the uh, in, in the Sun Belt. And um, you know they they also have an initiative on the ballot to increase renewable energy. Um, let's start there. Yeah, so um, Arizona is like a lot of states. Um, they have what is called the renewable energy um, standard, or sometimes renewable energy portfolio, but that requires a certain amount of their energy to be renewable, and requires that on utilities, and that's part of the deal with uh, monopolies is that the government can set some requirements for how they're going to provide energy. And so um, this is what they are doing in this initiative is really ramping that up and um, going for and requiring utilities to source 50% of their power from renewable sources by 2030. So that's, that's a pretty big jump from where they are. Um, And I think most people, you know, if you look at it, Arizona is, you know, one of the sunniest states in the country. They just tailor-made for for really ramping up their solar um, production. Um, wind also could be very attractive there. And so that initiative is really being supported by, you know, labor is very firmly behind this initiative, um, the public health community in Arizona because part of what they're talking about is air pollution and reducing air pollution. Um, of course, the environmental community is also part of that. Um, so it's a it's an interesting coalition. It is funded. A lot of this push is funded by Tom Steyer, who is, you know, this hedge fund billionaire in California who's really committed to uh, addressing climate change. And so that's been one of the kind of controversies there in Arizona is the, the oil industry and the fossil fuel industry has really seized on that. As right, a, billionaires fighting billionaires. Yeah, in some ways, yeah, as a way to oppose it rather than sort of arguing about the initiative on its own terms, which is the, the many different benefits that. Right. So, you know, interestingly here in the blog, you mentioned biogas as potentially a uh, a beneficiary here, which is somewhat controversial. Can you explain that? Yeah, so this is one of the issues in these renewable energy standards that states have been setting, is that it, when they define renewable energy, a lot of us think, go oh, solar, wind, uh, maybe hydropower, um, but they've also included biogas. And what that means is, um, in, in this context and in a lot of those contexts is capturing methane from giant uh, animal uh, animal agriculture facilities and you know so huge dairies or huge uh, pork production areas or cattle feedlots and um, of course these these types of operations generate enormous amounts of manure and they're stored in manure lagoons usually and so it's about you know, covering those manure lagoons and capturing the gas that comes up from them. So it's kind of creating a product out of the masses of amounts of manure that's produced. So this Arizona 
initiative does include uh, biogas as as part of that um, renewable energy requirement. Um, and there are uh, two big dairies in, in Arizona that do have methane digesters, so they'll be eligible to act, to kind of enter into that this new renewable market. Um, and then there also are a lot of dairy uh, operations in California, not that just across the border there, who are also uh, investing in these uh, methane digesters um, as part of the California carbon market. Mm-hmm. So um, our, our criticism of that approach is basically it is acting as a subsidy for a large-scale agricultural sort of really factory uh, style of production that has a lot of other uh, negative outcomes, whether it's, you know, it, these digesters don't address water quality issues. They don't address other types of pollutants that are not greenhouse gas emissions. Um, they don't address the issues that they cause in rural communities. Um, and so it's a, um, it's kind of a false solution as we look at it and not the type of agricultural system that we're going to have to transition towards to both adapt to climate change as well as, as be part of the solution. I wanted to, uh, touch on one thing that you had mentioned kind of in passing about California's market which is that uh, the renewable energy portfolios in uh, states uh, doesn't necessarily mean the energy is going to be used in that state. And that's been somewhat controversial. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Part of the controversy is that you can set a renewable energy standard in your state, but your state may not actually be producing that renewable energy. And, and so if they, can, if they can source it from other parts uh, of the country, then they're not really reducing emissions in your state necessarily. So mm-hmm. um, that is really the, the source. And of course, you know, um, the more energy that is produced within a state, the more economic benefits it can bring. And the more the people of your state can benefit from those economic benefits. Um, and this is the same in food and agriculture as well. So it's, it's uh, kind of the, the multiplier effect that local economies can bring as opposed to purchasing things from far off. Well, let's talk about Hawaii now. Yeah, well, I, I would say that, that of states that are looking at climate change and agriculture and the intersection of those two, um, California and Hawaii are far and away ahead of others. Hawaii... Um, was one of the first states that when, when Donald Trump uh, pulled, announced he was going to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement, one of the first states to step up and say, we're in with the Paris Agreement. And they put forth a really pretty bold climate plan. Um, of course, Hawaii is already experiencing climate change. They're very vulnerable to sea level rise, um, and they can feel it. And so there's a ur- different kind of urgency coming from Hawaii, I think, than, than other parts of the country. And one of the things that they set up was a greenhouse gas sequestration task force. And it, and it first was um, in initial iterations that have been called a carbon farming task force, and then they sort of broadened it. Um, but it is kind of one of the first of its type in the country and really looking at how uh, agricultural practices uh, on Hawaii 
can reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, what types of production they're going to have to shift towards or expand, um, how they can work with their farmers. So the farmers are very active in the development of um, the policy and how it's going to go forward. Um, they're looking at all different types of revenue streams. So they haven't quite set up, you know, everything's sort of in process, but it's extremely ambitious um, and will be very interesting to see how it goes forward and how they integrate farming concerns with their climate goals. And California in particular, they, they have had, um, you know, uh, multiple years of actual climate smart agriculture programs in place um, that have, um, you know, I think funded something like $300 billion or million dollars, I'm sorry, in, in projects that protect farmland, that sequester carbon through soil, um, soil health types of pro projects. And they actually have a project that is designed to help um, uh, sort of CAFO style, large, large scale dairies transition from um, a confined system to a pasture based system, um, which is very innovative and uh, something that's going to happen, have to happen, I think, in, in other parts of the country as well. So California is kind of on that path. And, and of course, they've had their carbon market in place. So they are generating money that help fund uh, some of that work. It needs more needs to be funded. And we have a, a short blog up about talking to the California uh, Agriculture and Climate um, Network. And they have put together uh, a really strong series of recommendations for the governor about how to improve those programs and expand those programs. Yeah, and then just just finally, you know, it's um, Gavin Newsom has a very uh, strong chance of being the next governor of California. And part of what your uh, conversation with Calcan on was recommendations for California's next governor as the um, the state, you know, one of the two states that's really out ahead on on. Uh, climate and ag, um, what are some of the exciting things that could be done in the next couple of years in California? Yeah, so they, um, they have some pretty good programs in place. I think what um, CalCAM is pushing for is um, scaling up those programs, so um, making them, expanding them, making them more accessible. One of the things that they talked about um, was that there are many more farmers applying for these programs than they have resources available. And that tells you that um, farmers are ready to make a change, um, but they need help in that transition. Um, and this is a case of, of farmers all over the country, uh, particularly in this difficult farm economy and challenges that, that farmers are facing economically. Um, so they have a series of four different types of climate smart agriculture programs and CalCAN is saying we need to improve these and scale these up, make them more accessible, not just to, and, and particularly accessible to um, smaller scale farmers uh, and farmers of color, which are growing uh, in that state. And so there's that, there are, there are programs that protect farmland that are really important. Um, and, and then farm and then programs that support, as I mentioned before, a transition from um, you know large scale dairies to pasture dairies, and that's really important for California. They've identified um, 
emissions from these large-scale dairies as a major source of greenhouse gas gases in that state. So they're trying to reduce those. Um, so those are the you know kind of top-level recommendations that they have. And hopefully, uh, other states will be following suit on starting on Wednesday. We'll see. <laughs> Knock on wood. Uh, ben, thanks a lot mm-hmm. for joining me on the podcast today. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Upgraded, the podcast from the Institute for Agriculture and Trade Policy. For more on what you've heard today, including Marie Ben's blog, you can visit our website at www.iatp.org. If you want to figure out where and when to vote, uh, you can go to iatp.org slash vote and look up where your nearest polling location is. If you like what you've heard on the podcast today, please give us a rating. We're available for download on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.